0: American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York. This presentation took place at the CUNY Graduate Center as part of our Bridging Historias through Latino History and Culture Program, a national endowment for the Humanities Bridging Cultures at Community Colleges Project. I work at SUNY Stony Brook. I teach in the history department there. Um, What what we wanted to do is that someone had um, come up to us and asked us to say more about the song Deportee by Woody Guthrie. And so we wanted to play it for you because I think it's a good segue into what I'm going to talk about with the Bracero program. Okay, so that's just a little sample of it, Um, but it is a song about an actual plane crash that happened in Coalinga, California in 1948, and it was a plane full of Bracero guest workers, which, um, if you guys read my article, A Town Full of Dead Mexicans, that's a good primer on the Bracero program for you, which I'll be talking about. Um, in more detail. And it was a plane full of these guest workers from Mexico who had uh, finished with their contracts. They were taking them back into the interior of Mexico along with some undocumented immigrants. But when the plane crashed, there was no record of all of the names of these people. They were just seen as Mexicans who had to be taken back. So it was just last year that researchers finally compiled a list of all of the names and memorialized them. So now they do have a memorial in California, but the fact that it took over half a century for that to happen really illuminates the lack of personhood, the lack of social citizenship and belonging that these guest workers and uh, migrants from Mexico had in the 1940s. So that's where I'm going to pick up from Maria's great lecture. So I'm going to be um, focusing on the period from 1942 to the present. So we already know a little bit about the Bracero program of the 1940s, but I wanted to give you a little bit more information. The Bracero Program was a guest worker program um, that began in World War II because all of these men were being drafted into the military, and that was taking a lot of labor out of the nation's fields. So the U.S. and Mexico negotiate this program in order to fill that labor void um, in agriculture, but also in the railroads. The U.S. railroad system is still being built at this time. Um, and guest workers are needed to lay the track, lay the ties, um, and uh, create that transportation system for the nation. It was originally conceived to only last for the duration of the war. Instead, the Bracero Program lasts for over 20 years. It lasts from 1942 to 1964. And my article, which talks about that train crash, that other tragedy that happened, Um, is an accelerant of the ending of the program in 64 by Congress. Um, So it was an agreement negotiated that these Mexican men would come for a certain period of time to work on either the fields or the railroads. On average, we imported about 200,000 Mexican men per year, and they were spread all over the country. They went to go work in the west, in California, the southwest. They went to go work in timber in the Pacific Northwest, places like Oregon, Washington State. They were working in the fields in the Deep South, Arkansas, um, for instance, was a big receiver of braceros. The Midwest, the sugar beets in Michigan, the apples um, in the Midwest certainly got their labor. And in the Northeast, a lot of them came to Pennsylvania, for instance, to work on the railroad and to work in the fields. Um, So, all of these men are being dispersed around the nation, and suddenly some communities around the, the U.S. are becoming more, quote, brown, right? This is the browning of America that's starting to take place through this temporary guest worker program. And like Maria was talking about, this policing of bodies that she was referring to, this coming across the border and being checked for who you were as a person, also for your body, your characteristics. Braceros were certainly looked at um, in a way reminiscent of, you know, almost likened to the slave labor market that we had in the 19th century. Um, When they were crossing the border, when they were being contracted, contractors um, and recruitment officials would often pat them on the back to see how strong their muscles were. They would shake their hand to see if they had calluses to prove that they had done manual labor. Um, They checked them for uh, STDs vaccinated them for everything. They fumigated them with DDT several times to de-louse them, to cleanse them. Um, and in interviews I've done with Braceros and the Smithsonian has done a lot of interviews with Braceros and they can be found online in a great resource called the Bracero Archive. Um, these men recall that the DDT not only stung every part of their body in their eyes and everything, but it left their bodies powdered with white substance, right, so it's actually the whitening, if we take it literally, it's the whitening of these brown bodies at the border at these checkpoints, um, because they were they were in, seen to be inherently dirty, diseased, prone to all of these things that we did not want in the country, and yet we wanted their labor. We wanted their brazos, their arms. That's why they're called braceros. That means armed men in Spanish. Um, So, this definite uh, focus on the body, who we want in the country, the masculinity, we want it for their labor. We don't want it as actual, you know, people being absorbed into the social fabric of the country. We are policing them for a certain purpose in the United States. So, what the U.S. Government was guaranteeing through the Bracero Program were the following things. They promised a contract of anywhere from three to nine months. They promised safe transportation. We all know that that um, did not work out so well. They promised sanitary housing to Braceros. They promised decent food served in the labor camps. And they promised the local, quote, prevailing wage for their work. Prevailing wage meaning the wage that was being paid to domestics, meaning U.S. citizen farm workers at this time. Prevailing wages were set, though, by growers themselves. So if all the growers got together and agreed upon a wage that everybody would stick to, nobody would raise the wage for anything, right? Because they all agreed to keep the industry competitive. We're all going to set this wage, and domestics and braceros have to be at it. They can't go above it. Um, so Braceros, you know, these um, these terms really ended up meaning that they were making anywhere from, you know, $1.25 an hour in the Pacific Northwest. That was actually the highest um, wage that we could find in the U.S. at this time. The Pacific Northwest was paying the highest at $1.25 an hour. The lowest was 30 cents an hour in Arkansas. Um, so the prevailing wage rates were totally – you know, dependent on the region, dependent on the growers who were colluding with each other to set this wage rate, and that meant that U.S. citizens had to be paid this much too. Um, So once braceros came in as this influx of cheaper labor, wages got depressed for American farm workers because there was no federal minimum wage that was established in the agricultural industry. So I want to talk about um, the bracero program and then the following things. Um, in the course of my talk. So we'll move from the 40s to the 50s, talking about undocumented immigration that results out of the program, Um, an important immigration law that follows um, or takes the place, rather, of the National Origins Act, the Johnson-Reed Act of 24. Then we'll talk about Central American migration in the 70s and 80s, because I think that's really important for talking about the demographic change in this country over time. Um, IRCA and NAFTA as immigration policies under Reagan and Clinton, and finally, I'll touch on SB 1070 and the DREAM Act, today's immigration-related controversies. So again, like I was saying, all of these things are what the U.S. promised braceros over the course of their stay in the United States, and these terms were barely upheld or not even upheld at all because of poor monitoring on the part of the U.S. government. If braceros are being dispersed all around the nation and yet there's no one to check if they're getting what they're promised, that often led to a lot of exploitation and a lot of abuse um, because employers are not being watched um, and it's hard to get governmental representatives into these labor camps to see what's really going on. So what kind of conditions did braceros actually have to work in? So, this is a picture that you'll be working with later in the teaching resources, but I wanted to show it to you now because it illustrates um, the type of labor, the back-breaking stoop labor that a lot of braceros working in agriculture had to endure. So what you see these men working with is uh, the short-handled hoe, which is less than two feet long, and in Spanish it's called el cortito, the short one. Um, it's a uh, implement of labor that requires one to bend at really uncomfortable angles, as you see here. And if your workday is 10 to 14 hours a day with this repetitive motion, think of what that does to your back. Um, and a lot of farm workers in the past and in the present suffer a lot of deformities, a lot of spinal injury over time um, because of having to use this particular tool. It wasn't outlawed until 1975. Um, so this um, little short-handled hoe is what causes you know, workers to have to bend in that way, and where we get the phrase stoop labor, that is actually how the body looks when it's cutting away at weeds, at um, patches of lettuce, heads of lettuce, that type of thing. Um, so they had to work with this particular tool. Um, I said already that the prevailing wage rates weren't really um, all that high. Their living conditions were often very unsanitary. Bracero labor camps were often made of old barns, chicken coops. Um, They were styled after military barracks, so hundreds of men would be sleeping in the same building and sharing one or two showers or, you know, one or two bathrooms or sinks. Um, Physical danger, um, like you read about in my article, unsafe transportation was very prevalent. Um, Often transported these laborers in buses or trucks that did not have any um, sort of safety, um, uh, you know, respect to safety in them. Um, They also received a lack of or did not receive medical attention. Um, They had to be in near-death condition or they had to have broken a bone or something really severe for their foreman or their supervisor to call in a doctor. They really did not um, have immediate medical attention there for them if they were working in really hazardous things. You know, if you're working on the railroad, um, picking up ties, you could accidentally, you know, fracture your skull. Um, Or you could lose a limb um, if you got in between some uh, rail cars or something like that. Um, In the fields, I interviewed one man who um, cut his hand when he was cutting lettuce and he was just bleeding everywhere. And his foreman said, um, I'm going to deduct every head of lettuce that you bleed on. You know, just go wrap up your hand um, and get back to work. So all of these things, all of this pain, really characterized a lot of uh, the bracero experience. And I, that's a really important thing that we can't discount because it's a lot of physical bodily harm that's being done to these people who are seen not as full citizens. They're temporary, they're seen as birds of passage who will return home, um, and so we don't need to absorb them as you know, community members. Um, they work outside of that. So the social marginalization also takes a toll on the mentality of these guest workers, too. And finally, Braceros did not receive a lot of help from their own government. The Mexican consulate in the United States often didn't help them when it came to complaints because they basically said there are plenty of other men who want what you have, so if you don't like it, go back to Mexico and we'll just recruit more in your place. Um, So this bottomless pool of economically desperate Mexican men who wanted to work in the program fed you know, this vicious cycle of wage depression, of exploitation, um, because if the economy was so bad in Mexico that people were willing to endure all of the, these um, afflictions and these types of pain, then that always meant that agribusiness had the upper hand. They always had this reservoir of cheaper labor that was prohibited from unionizing in this binational agreement. They could not agitate for better conditions. They were really, really powerless in this program. So this has caused some historians to argue that Braceros were, quote, the slaves we rented during the 20th century, and you may have heard that phrase um, as applied to this program. Um, And a really interesting debate that I always have with my students at Stony Brook is how much can we liken this program to slavery? What are the similarities and differences when it comes to race, labor? bonded labor, um, immigration, all of these different things, um, brings up a really interesting discussion. How do we see um, the, the, the history along with the present times? Because this wasn't that long ago. If it ends in 64, that's a lot closer in students' minds than slavery, but that's a big way to bring these two stories together. So I always find it interesting that my students latch onto that as something to discuss and debate with themselves. Um, So the program finally ends in 1964 because of that train crash I talk about in my article, but also because Congress is just bombarded with um, all of this anti-program rhetoric from Mexican-American civil rights activists, from the Catholic Church and other religious organizations, from the NAACP and other um, civil rights organizations across lines of race saying that this exploitation is wrong. It's wrong for people from Mexico, and it's wrong for people in the United States who are losing their jobs because they're being replaced with this non-unionized cheaper labor force that growers are taking advantage of. Um, So this transnational exploitation that's going on is what causes this program to finally come to an end. but only after a quarter of a century in the United States. Um, So what the program also does is create a parallel stream of undocumented immigration. Um, And this uh, creates tensions between U.S. citizen Latinos and immigrant Latinos. If U.S. citizen farm workers who, you know, in reality at this point are Mexican Americans, They're suffering from these depressed wages. They're suffering from unemployment. And they also come to resent braceros and undocumented immigrants um, as people who are holding them back in their own civil rights struggles. This is where we start to see a lot of intra-ethnic conflict between Latinos in the 20th century is when we get the bracero importations and when we start getting more undocumented immigration. Yeah. How did this go from being Mexican to being Latino? Oh, well, when I'm talking about Latino, I'm using that as an umbrella term to talk about both U.S. and immigrant. Up until this point, what you're talking about, they were all Mexican. Right.
1: Okay, so then what we're looking at is we intra Mexican.
0: Yeah, intra Mexicano, if we want to call it that. Yeah. But I use Latino because I'm talking about more than one group, but I see what you're saying. It's just. Um, Right, so there are separate guest worker programs going on, like a lot of Puerto Ricanos are coming to the Northeast to work in their own separate guest worker program. But yes, in this case, I'm just talking about Mexican origin people. Um, So the racial association that Mexican Americans have with Braceros, they start being conflated all as foreigners, all as um, these people who don't belong here as citizens in the United States. So that creates a lot of tension if Mexican-Americans who had grown up in the U.S. all their life are now being looked at as just as foreign or just as, quote, Mexican um, as any guest worker and suffering the consequences of such discrimination. Um, So that's also an additional problem that starts to emerge is this resentment that happens between U.S.-born and immigrant Mexicans. Um, The 1950s especially are a decade where we see this tension operating. The Bracero program, what it does is that it causes this parallel stream of undocumented immigration. Um, Because it took a lot of money to be contracted as a Bracero, you had to pay money just to be considered for the program, and it took so long to, to find out if you were going to be contracted. It could take weeks or months. Um, Some people wanted to jump the line, in essence. They didn't want to wait, they couldn't wait, they didn't have the money to pay for the contract. Um, So they uh, started immigrating without papers, sin papeles, unauthorized. Um, So these people were derogatorily termed wetbacks. Um, And these people, undocumented migrants, they were both men and women, unlike braceros who were just men, They were both male and female, um, and they worked for even lower wages than what braceros were working for. Because they were more economically desperate, they were willing to accept the worse wages. What this does is depress wages even further. If a grower knows that he can get, you know, a worker for 50 cents an hour, he's not going to want the citizen worker who wants a dollar or more an hour, right, or a bracero who has in their labor contract that they should be paid. 90 cents an hour, for instance. Um, The lower that the echelons go when it comes to the labor hierarchy, the more exploited everybody becomes at all the different levels. So the figure of the undocumented migrant, if we think about the national context going on here, it's the Cold War. It's the time of the Cold War. It's the time of this fear of radicals, like Maria was saying earlier, of subversives, of foreigners, infiltrators. Um, crossing our borders, and that extends to the figure of the, quote, wetback. Um, And I'm only using that word because it was the word that was being used by governmental officials and by um, anti-immigrant figures at this time period. So the INS actually conducts a paramilitary operation that they actually call Operation Wetback in 1954. And this was an immigration raid uh, process that took place all across the Southwest. And what it did was expel 3.7 million undocumented Mexicans from the country by bus, train, plane, and boat. They actually had boat lifts as well. Um, So all of this is going on in a time where Mexican-Americans, U.S. born, Mexicans are really concerned with presenting themselves as American as they can be. Right? They don't want to be looked at as foreigners. They don't want to be targeted as people who don't belong there. Um, and what the INS operation "What Back" actually does is lead to a lot of racial profiling. If these immigration raids are taking place in the streets, in movie theaters, in bars, in the fields, um, in different sectors of the public, you know, of public life. Um, A lot of INS officials are actually wrongly apprehending Mexican-Americans just because they, quote, look like a wetback. Um, So this leads again to those tensions between Mexican-origin people, immigrant versus citizen, Um, and the two are being conflated by immigration authorities at this time period. So I want to give you a sense of who the undocumented were. Who were these people who were trying to cross without papers? Um, my own research on the Salinas Valley of California, um, Steinbeck country, um, I looked at the INS uh, branch office records from the 50s, and these are just some of the faces of undocumented migrants who were eventually deported once they were caught by the INS. Um, as you see, there are a variety of ages. They're both men and women. Women, you know, more rare. There were fewer of them, but they were still coming. Um, for work, to be reunited with family, um, and crossing the border in really dangerous ways. We had people who were, you know, trying to hold on to the backs or the undersides of freight trains coming into the United States. There were people crossing through, you know, extremely hot or cold desert territory. Um, There were people trying to cross by swimming the Rio Grande River coming into Texas. That's actually where we get the term wetback. You're wet when you come out of that river um, trying to cross into the United States. So as you see here, you know, some of these people are incredibly young. Um, Some of these migrants, you know, they they look like little boys, and they are, really. Um, This first one you see here at the bottom, that's Antonio Vasquez. He was 18 years old, and he wanted to be a doctor, but he was too poor, so he had um, to for himself and his family cross into the United States. Guadalupe Bravo, in the middle, crossed into the U.S. three times and was deported each time, but he kept coming. He was only 17 in that picture. Um, And Enrique Padilla, who was 18, was deported after migrating six times to the United States. Um, So this persistence, this desperation to keep crossing, even if you got caught and sent back again, um, it just shows how people – wanted work so badly um, and what they were willing to risk in doing so. They were willing to risk being caught, um, being sent back um, to Mexico and having to make the journey all over again. So that just gives the personal kind of side, the humanity to this figure of the illegal alien, which becomes very racialized, very demonized um, in American Cold War culture. And the INS is certainly um, playing more into that. So before I move on to um, Central American migration, I wanted to just give you uh, this one um, important immigration law that takes the place of the Johnson-Reed Act in 1924. It's the Hart-Celler Immigration Act of 65, which um, maybe you probably already know about. So this Immigration Act um, leveled the playing field, so to speak, when it came to visa numbers, um, immigrants that were allowed to come into the country. So there was an annual limit imposed 300,000 visas around the entire globe um, could come to the United States. It was first come, first serve. 170,000 visas went to the Eastern Hemisphere, um, 120,000 went to the Western Hemisphere, and no more than 20,000 visas could be given per any one country. What this does is place a quota on Mexico for the very first time. Mexico had never had an immigration quota before 1965. And what this does, what the Hartzeller Act actually does, is create more illegal immigration because this cap is not high enough. The historical relationship that the U.S. and Mexico had, this historical pattern of thousands of people migrating north per year, um, that cap, that ceiling, was too low. And so what this does is illegalizes a lot of people coming through. This is the first quota ever put on Mexico. Um, so while the Hart-Seller Act was seen by some as, oh, it's this measure of equality. We're distributing the same number of visas to every country, and that's um, you know, part of this liberal agenda. We're giving equality to the whole world to come to the United States. What it's actually doing is taking the closest neighbor and putting a very low ceiling. Um, in in regards to this and disregarding this historical relationship that the U.S. has had of pulling Mexican labor constantly from across the border. Now more people are undocumented because of this act. Okay, moving on to Central America, going south of Mexico. So what I wanted to talk about are three groups that start coming into the U.S. in bigger numbers in the 70s and 80s, Guatemalans, Salvadorans, and Nicaraguans. I'm going to talk about those three countries in particular because of the civil wars that go on in those countries that bring a lot of people to the United States in the 70s and 80s especially. So the first, El Salvador. So in El Salvador there was a conflict, a uh, civil war between a military-led right-wing government and the FMLN, a leftist coalition of five different groups, um, mostly made up of campesinos, field workers, um, and intellectuals. And what the the FMLN was asking for um, was fair elections and fair social conditions all across the board, regardless of class. How the government responds is by suspending constitutional rights and setting up paramilitary death squads, so a lot of people's lives are at risk if they're part of this rebel insurgency trying to change um, the government of El Salvador. So what ends up happening is that a lot of citizens flee their homes um, and start migrating to the United States, and Salvadoreños especially migrate to the two cities of Chicago and Los Angeles. Um, So in the 70s and 80s, we see this influx of Central Americans into the Midwest and into Southern California. Um, The U.S. Government, I should say, um, has a long history of funding, training, um, providing soldiers in struggles where they feel their interests are at stake. So the U.S. is certainly having its hands in Latin America, Central America at this time, and the U.S. Government actually sends the El Salvadoran Government $7 billion over ten years to fund um, the military-led right-wing government against the FMLN. Um, So, the U.S. definitely has a hand in creating the very civil war that spurs a lot of immigration to the United States. In Guatemala, the same thing happens. The Guatemalan Civil War was the longest in Latin American history. Lasted from 1960 to 1996. Um, Thousands of people lost their lives. Over 200,000 were killed um, over these 36 years. Over 100,000 were disappeared, we have no idea what happened to them, Um, and 626 villages experienced massacres. Um, And this loss of life and this chaos, this economic and political chaos, leads a lot of Guatemalans to flee to cities, again, like Chicago. Um, A lot of them go to Chicago. And once again, we see the U.S. financing and training the Guatemalan. Uh, police and military because they had economic interests in Central America and they wanted to keep those leaders in power. They were the ones that the U.S. was working with um, to protect their own economic and political interests there. So this chaos, this political chaos in Central America at this time period is what's causing that demographic change that we see in the United States, a lot more Central Americans coming. The same case with Nicaragua. Somoza was the dictator in power over the 1970s, backed by the United States, and the leftist Sandinistas, or the FSLN, um, were the rebel insurgents trying to overthrow Somoza and change the government of their country. The U.S., um, a lot of you know about the Iran-Contra affair of the 80s. Um, That happens because the U.S. is funding the Contras, to fight the FSLN through selling weapons to Iran and using part of those proceeds to fund the Contras. Um, and this all comes to light in a court trial in the 80s, where Oliver North was deposed and, you know, all, we all remember that story. So um, Somoza is eventually deposed in the late 1970s, but in the process, of a lot of Nicaraguans have tried to flee as well. They want to flee all the turmoil in their home, and so Florida is their preferred destination. So that's why we see um, a big Nicaraguan influx in Florida, places like Miami um, in the 70s and 80s. So that gives you an overall picture um, of what's going on in the individual countries. Central Americans as a whole, as of 2010, there was almost 1.7 million Central Americans living in the United States. Um, But the way that their citizenship and the way that their belonging has been different from, say, Cubans um, over the course of the Cold War was that they faced very stiff or uneven immigration laws and policies. Um, Refugee status was not given to any of them because in declaring them refugees, the U.S. would have had to admit their role in the very things that made them refugees in the first place. Um, Amnesty was only given to a small percent um, of the Central American migrants who came. And TPS, which stands for Temporary Protected States Status, was only given in certain cases um, for Central Americans. So it's been this inconsistent way of treating this population in the United States as migrants that has definitely affected their pathways to social inclusion, to social belonging. in very different ways than their their counterparts, such as Cubans in Florida were experiencing a lot more forgiving immigration policies at this time because of the anti-Castro sentiment during the Cold War. In the 1980s, some American citizens take it upon themselves to provide sanctuary for these Central Americanos who are coming in. Um, So the sanctuary movement, um, churches in Tucson, Arizona, and San Francisco, California, start offering shelter to these migrants to keep them safe from prosecution. Um, And this brings up this whole debate of how much can a citizen help a migrant? Um, When does moral law or a human rights perspective overcome, or when should it um, overshadow immigration policy um, by the U.S. Government? It's a very um, important debate that, uh, again, is, is beneficial to talk about um, with students. I'm Gonna move very quickly through um, two presidential eras that bring about important immigration laws. The first is the Reagan era, which brings about IRCA, the Immigration Reform and Control Act, which did three things. It made it illegal to knowingly hire undocumented people. It granted amnesty to certain seasonal migrants in agriculture. And it granted amnesty to those who had entered before January 1st of 1982. Um, But because of poor enforcement and poor administration, a lot of migrants didn't know if they qualified um, for such a thing. They didn't know where to go to have these amnesty um, documents given to them or this status given to them. And so the era of IRCA was a very confusing, bureaucratic nightmare, um, if we want to – put it bluntly, um, because it, it promised a lot of things and yet when it came to the actual implementation there were still a lot of people who may have qualified for all of these things but didn't, and the illegalization of knowingly hiring undocumented immigrants, a lot of employers did not receive the sanctions that they should have for violating that law. So a lot of um, employers, especially in agriculture, were just you know got away with continuing to employ undocumented people. In the Clinton era, Clinton tried to prevent undocumented immigration through deterrence, um, policies of deterrence. This is when we start to see the border becoming militarized. The fences and the walls start going up in what some people nicknamed the tortilla curtain um, that goes up between the US and Mexico at this time. The physical um, Uh, visibility uh, that the border is closed. Um, NAFTA is a huge thing, I think, in the trajectory of immigration history. That was implemented in 1994 under Clinton's administration. And what it was was basically this trade agreement between the U.S., Mexico, and Canada that eliminated a lot of tariffs, um, taxes on imports and exports. Um, So what actually ended up happening was that U.S. corn, for instance, imported into Mexico ended up being cheaper than the corn that was being produced by Mexican farmers themselves. What that ends up happening is putting a lot of Mexican farmers out of business and making them migrate to the United States for work. Again we see this um, un- these unintended consequences of these policies, right, something that is meant to open trade is actually preventing people from making a living and causing more migration to happen. Um, Maquiladoras are border factories that also are a result of NAFTA. NAFTA allows U.S. companies to set up shop in Mexico and create border factories that, one, are – experience a lot more leniency when it comes to environmental regulations. They're allowed to dump a lot more toxic waste in Mexico than they are in the United States. Um, They're allowed to pollute the air a lot more in Mexico because of these uh, border industrialization agreements, and they're allowed to pay their workers a lot cheaper wages. Um, So what this does is take a lot of U.S. business out of the country. Maquiladoras um, are for companies like Sony, GE, HP. Um, a lot of the things that make our digital, you know, luxuries today or necessities, um, as I see my laptop, I need it. Um, but a lot of these things are actually created across the border by workers who are receiving seven times less than what a U.S. worker would be making if if it was in a U.S. factory. Um, one controversy that has happened um, that, again, is a, is a tragic thing that's happening right now across the border, across from El Paso in Ciudad Juarez in Mexico. Um, are femicides, meaning the murder of women. Um, so a lot of these maquiladora workers are young women, and they work incredibly long shifts, and on the way to or f- from work, either in the very late night or the early morning, a lot of them have been abducted and murdered, um, and nobody knows who has done this to, to them. Um, there's been a lot of corruption, a lot of obfuscation in the Mexican police. Um, The FBI has come to investigate in Mexico a couple of times, um, but no one has solved these murders, and I think it's important to consider that these women are part of a border economy that the U.S. is interacting with with Mexico, um, and I think the loss of their lives is something to take into account when we think about border trade, border economies, and our binational responsibilities. Um, to these things. I know I'm over time, but I'm just going to wrap up with one um, last thing, which is today's immigration crisis that's going on. What are the different controversies that we're dealing with today? Um, two big things that I wanted to mention, um, but first, a statistic. Over one or 11 million undocumented people are currently living in the United States, um, often living in the shadows, trying not to be detected. Um, 80 percent are from Latin America, 60 percent from Mexico alone. So Mexico continues to be the largest Latin American sending nation um, when it comes to undocumented immigration. The two big controversies, the two big debates that are kind of on our table right now um, are Arizona's SB 1070 and the DREAM Act. SB 1070 was originally passed by the Arizona legislature in 2010. And what the original SB 1070 tried to do was make it a misdemeanor to not have your documents on you, your birth certificate proof that you belonged in the United States, um, and it allowed authorities to apprehend you if they suspected you of being undocumented. Um, So that could mean anything from seeing a suspicious behavior to just thinking, suspecting that you weren't supposed to be in the country. Um, and this is what al- has led a lot of people to call it racial profiling. It's very reminiscent of Operation Wetback, if you think about it. It's anyone who looks like they shouldn't be here. Um, and what the Supreme Court did was strike down the not having the documents on you as a crime, but it kept the reasonable suspicion part of it, which uh, that's what's upsetting a lot of people. Um, it's this continuation of allowing authorities to gauge you on their own criteria as not belonging. Um, And that, of course, leads to tensions around citizenship. And finally, um, and this is something your students will definitely be interested in, is talking about the DREAM Act, because it affects people their age, um, or a lot of people their age. So the DREAM Act stands for Development, Relief, and Education for Alien Minors. Um, And what this act is trying to do is um, serve youth who were brought into the country illegally by their parents, but who they themselves did not, they were too young to be aware that it was a crime to be in the country um, illegally. So a lot of these kids, a lot of these youth did not find out they were undocumented until their parents had to reveal it to them when they were applying for a driver's license or applying to a college scholarship. Um, or a lot of these kids have been aware that they've been undocumented and have had to realize my life stops at high school. I can't do anything further um, if I don't have a way to get into college to get financial aid um, and to be helped to move on, um, to have a future. So what the DREAM Act is trying to do is um, give these youth the option of you know, enrolling in college or enlisting in the military and having that be the condition under which um, they have a legal path to citizenship. And of course, when that's couched, you know, in this package of total immigration reform, a lot of people see the Dream Act as complicated. They don't want to pay um, for the financial aid for these students, especially you know state colleges. This is where it applies. You would be paying for um, the financial aid. You would be paying to have these students in schools um, in colleges. Um, And another argument against the DREAM Act is that it would encourage chain migration. Those are the two big arguments against this act. The argument for it is why wouldn't you want talented youth in our schools in the military? Um, And DREAMers are the activists, the young activists who are trying to persuade the House to finally decide um, on it and to push immigration reform because the Senate already has, um, and now it's up to the House. So will these DREAMs? Um, be realized or will they not? Um, That's something that we're looking at today. So I'll just end there. Thanks for your patience.